Please turn with me back in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I want to say a few words about last Sunday's text and then get into today's passage. Let me pray for us one more time. Heavenly Father, I would ask that as we think about life now and the sufferings in this present time and what you are doing through them now in this life, and then as we think about what has been called the intermediate state for those who are believers who have died before the return of Christ, and then as we think about the eternal state of the new heavens and new earth briefly when Christ returns, God, I pray that you would help us to be of good courage that we would be able to fix our eyes on these things that are coming and that are promised and some that are present now. I pray you'd be honored in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. If you remember from last Sunday's sermon, a theme that runs straight through last week's text and today's passage is about not losing heart. Look with me back at chapter 4, verse 1, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, We do not lose heart. Skip down to verse 16. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Chapter 5, verse 6. So we are always of good courage. Verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. Now remember, Paul has been suffering, as was true throughout his Christian life, from many different things. And do we remember Paul's list of his sufferings? Let me just remind you, if it's been a minute since you've heard this, Paul says, far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And he says, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, Danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And we're used to that list. We've probably heard that, many of us. Then listen, who is weak and I am not weak, Paul says. But if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weaknesses. Paul, 2 Corinthians, remember, it's about weakness, human weakness and God's strength. We are clay pots. God has resurrection power. We walk around with the death of Christ being manifested in our bodies as we are suffering, and yet the resurrection power of Christ is also at work in and through us all at the same time. So Paul says, no matter what you are facing, you don't have to fall into despair. You don't have to lose heart. You can be of good courage because of the promises of what God is doing now, what He will do after death, and what He will do in resurrection when Christ returns. We live by seeing what is unseen, which mainly comes from seeing what God has promised and believing it and walking by, uh, walking by faith, not by sight. So the end of last week's text, look with me here at verses 16 to 18. They're just wonderful verses. I want to focus on them one more time. Verse 16 of chapter 4, so we do not lose heart, 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is very early in a sermon to be giving application. I'm going to begin with a point of application. Look with me at verse 17 again. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What this text means is, for the believer, there is no affliction, no matter how great, there is no pain, no matter how severe that is not being worked by God in our life for His glory and for our good. Because it says here, not that there's going to be a light momentary affliction and then an eternal weight of glory. That's not what the text says. The text says this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Which means the sufferings are not just something that we have to get through and then there's glory in some mysterious way. I don't know that I fully understand it. God is actually working all of our sufferings to prepare us for the eternal weight of glory, which means no suffering is pointless in the Christian life. John Piper was preaching on this text. He's got a clip online on this very passage. It's wonderful about how no suffering is meaningless in the Christian. And he mentions John the Baptist. If there was ever an act, a moment of suffering in all of the Bible that seemed pointless, absurd, ridiculous, it was John the Baptist's death. Remember, he's imprisoned for doing the right thing and calling out King Herod. Herod hates him for the embarrassment that that caused. He puts him in jail. The woman Herod is sleeping with at the time wants John dead because he's made both of them look bad by calling out their immorality. And while John is sitting in prison, there's that moment where there's a dance, Herod is pleased, he's at a drunken party, he calls for, remember the, the girl asked for the head of John the Baptist, and I don't know if John found out why he was about to die, but it's possible he was told at the last second why this was happening, I don't know, but it's possible, and if he was told, here's what he would have heard. This young woman was doing a, a dance of some kind in front of a drunk, bunch of drunk men at a party for Herod, and the girl asked for your head because it's Herodias' daughter and she does not like you. So they asked for us to sever your head and we're going to put it on a platter. We're going to take your head back into the party on a platter. We're going to present it to this girl and to her mom and to Herod and everyone is going to be astonished that Herod actually kept his word. That's, that's why you're about to die. If John would have known that a moment before his death, he would have no doubt been tempted to think this seems utterly absurd and meaningless. And yet, in the mystery of God's providence, God was working this to prepare John for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond comparison. And we know that because we don't fix our eyes on what we see and what seems to make sense to me in the moment with human logic, but because I can bank it all on what God has promised me. And I know that God's Word is trustworthy and that God doesn't let anything come into our life that He does not have good purposes for. And so God is working all things for our good. I thought about this. No suffering, remember Romans 8, 18, I consider the sufferings of this present world are not worth comparing 
with the glory that is to be revealed to us. No suffering can be compared to our future glory. You know, I'm thinking about this. I don't think he would mind me sharing you this at all. This is, uh, he spoke at, the, at, at his own father's funeral, but uh, I have a student named Owen Weatherly. He's 17 years old at Westminster. He'll be graduating this year, Lord willing. He's, he's a great guy, young guy. And uh, three years ago, almost exactly three years ago when he was 14, uh, his dad uh, lost a long battle with cancer. His dad was a believer, and he passed away. I went to his funeral at Redeemer Presbyterian in downtown. It was a, it was a wonderful funeral, and uh, Owen spoke at the funeral, 14 years old. Loved the Lord then, loves the Lord now, honored his father, honored the Lord at the funeral. His sister also spoke, Caroline. There was not a dry eye, as you can imagine, in that room with many people present, but uh, after what happened with, with Liliana just a few weeks ago, I was talking to our students about it, and Owen said, you know, this is making me obviously think about all that our family went through uh, three years ago. And he said, in fact, the anniversary of my father's passing away and going to heaven is this next week, you know, this next weekend. And so we, we split up. G- girls go with, uh, with, one, with one group of the class. I take the guys just with me. I was with Jerry's brother, Mike Ediger. And so we went to his room, just the guys in that class, and Mike Ediger and myself. And for, oh man, probably 30 or 40 minutes, we just talked about these things. And it was one of the most serious conversations I've ever had with 17-year-old guys, 18-year-old guys. It was a wonderful, amazing class spirit. I hope I don't forget it. And Owen just opened up and he was just talking. But I don't think he'd mind me sharing this with you at all. He said the night that he found out his dad had passed away, he said, just you, you imagine the feeling of that for especially a 14-year-old. And he said he went and got his Bible and he started reading Romans chapter 8. And he said he got to verse 18. This is within maybe an hour of his father passing away. He said this verse he read. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And Owen said this just now, I mean a couple weeks ago, he said to us, he said, if the horrible feeling that I felt that day he said, like, you can't put it into words. The horrific feeling of that moment, the suffering, the agony of that moment, he said, if that suffering, as awful as that day was and is, is, is still lingering, he said, if that suffering, as bad as it was, is not worthy of comparison with the glory that's coming, what must be that glory? He said, that verse was the stabilizing verse for him on the night of his father going to heaven. So no suffering in this life can be compared with our future glory. And get this, all suffering is preparing us for our future glory. I hope you get those two thoughts. No suffering in this life can compare with our future glory. It's not worth comparing. I heard one preacher said, you can compare a thimble of water with the ocean, but you cannot compare our present sufferings with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So no suffering can be compared to our future glory. But all suffering is preparing us for our future glory. I mean, if we, just to believe those two things, what a stabilizing force that is. I've heard the illustration of, and I don't know anything about boats, <laughs> but I've heard the illustration of boats. You've got ballast in the boat, right? You need, you need weight down at the bottom of the boat so that when a storm comes and the waves are knocking against the boat and the, the wind is howling and the boat is rocking back and forth, If you've got enough ballast in the boat, it holds the boat in place and the boat doesn't capsize because there's weight at the bottom. And for the believer, it doesn't mean that there are not storms. It doesn't mean that there are not tears. 
But it means at the end of the day, the weight of glory is the ballast at the bottom of our soul that holds us ultimately in place so that when the worst of things happen, we don't capsize. We don't overturn. We are held by God's graciousness. Let's get into our primary text here today is chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And I probably won't spend much time on verse 10 today, although perhaps on a future week we will get to that. I plan to finish chapter 5 perhaps on New Year's that Sunday, and then we'll go back to Matthew after all that is over for the Christmas season. We'll have Christmas sermons the next two weeks, just so you know where we're going. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I want to read for us the first five verses here. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For, we are, for while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we are always of good courage. Now, I just want to take a minute here to try to make an argument, because until we get some consensus about what Paul means in these verses, we're not going to find comfort if we don't know what they mean. So I'm going to take some time. This is going to be more of a mental thinking part of the sermon where I need to try to, I'm trying to persuade you of an interpretation. Not everyone agrees with this, but I, I, I'm persuaded by it. And I want to try to persuade you of what Paul is really talking about in these verses. It, it could be a little confusing the first time you read it. Paul talks about a tent that's being destroyed that's on earth or an earthly tent. Then he speaks about a heavenly dwelling, a dwelling that's eternal in the heavens, a house not made with hands. One might read this text and just quickly come to the conclusion that the earthly tent is earth itself, because we know one day there will be cosmic judgment of the earth with fire, so you might think, well, the earth is going to be destroyed. And then you might think the eternal dwelling in the heavens is heaven itself, so that we're going to leave earth and earth will be destroyed, and we're going to head to heaven and we're going to live forever in heaven. Uh, I am thoroughly persuaded that that is not what Paul is saying in this passage. Uh, I believe, and I think I can try to persuade you here, I don't know if I'll be successful, I'm going to try to persuade you, that the tent is referring to your physical body right here, right now. The tent is the physical body you have right now that your soul is dwelling in. Like someone living in a tent, your soul is living within the tent of your earthly physical body in the here and now. And I'm going to try to argue that the heavenly dwelling is not referring to um, a geographical location in heaven but that the heavenly dwelling is referring to your resurrection body, your resurrection body that you will receive in eternity when Christ returns. Now, to try to argue for this, just follow me here. In context, we've already seen Paul is talking about his body is falling apart. Have we not seen that in this text? He says, I'm a jar of clay with a treasure of the gospel inside of me. My body is like a clay pot that can break very easily. Ver chapter 4, verse 10, we are carrying in our body the death of Christ. Okay, uh, when you look at chapter 4, uh, verse 10 again, the, the, the life of God would be manifested in our bodies. We're being given over to death. If you look at um, other verses, he speaks like that. He speaks about verse 16 of chapter 4, our outer man or outer self is wasting away. What's he talking about? He's saying his physical body is wearing out. One day it will be destroyed. He will die. His soul and his body will be separated from one another. If you're wondering a biblical definition of death, Physical death is referring to the separation 
of the spirit or soul of a person from their body. We were made to be a unified soul and body together. That's how God made us. We were not made by nature to be separated from our bodies. And death is the the unnatural because of sin, the unnatural separation of the soul from the body. And then if you're still curious, he goes on to speak later in chapter 5, verse 6, middle of the verse, we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. And if you look at verse 10, we will stand before the judgment seat to receive what has been done in the body, whether good or bad. You see in context, he's talking about his body in this world versus his future body coming in the resurrection. Now, let me give you some biblical arguments beyond this text to to back that up. You don't have to turn to these, but this is Isaiah 38, verses 9 and 12. Do you remember Hezekiah the king almost died younger than he wanted to? And he pleads with the Lord for 15 more years, and the Lord gives him that extension of life. And he didn't always use those 15 years as well as he could have, but... uh, he says these words. He speaks about, he says, in the, I said, Hezekiah says, in the middle of my days, I must depart, a word for dying. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol, of the grave, for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord in the land of the living. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. And he says, like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. You see, he refers to his death, his departure, as his tent being taken away, his, his physical body being destroyed. Or how about from the New Testament? Remember, the Lord told Peter that he would be, I think he's referring to crucified upside down. Jesus says to Peter, one day people will dress you and take you where you do not want to go. And by so doing, Jesus told Peter by what means he would glorify God in his death. And so Peter writes, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, he says, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, and the ESV translates it body, same word, right, from 2 Corinthians. So I'm, as long as I'm in this tent, this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my tent, the putting off of my body, will be soon as the Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, his death, you'll be able to recall these things at any time. Clearly, there, the tent is his body. Now, John 1.14, the Word became flesh and literally tabernacled or pitched his tent among us. He, he dwelt among us in his, in his tent, his, his earthly body. John MacArthur writes this, just as the tabernacle of Israel's wandering in the wilderness, remember the tabernacle was a tent, was replaced by a permanent building, the temple, remember? It was a tent replaced by a building. Just as the tabernacle in the wandering in the wilderness was replaced by a permanent building when Israel entered the promised land, so the temporary tent in which believers now dwell, our body, will be replaced one day in heaven with eternal, imperishable bodies. I'll give you two more texts. Remember in John 2, the first time Jesus cleanses the temple, he does it at the beginning of his ministry, and then he does it three years later at the end of his ministry, he cleanses the temple. The first time with the whip. John 2, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Remember, listen to this, John 2, 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So the idea of tent and building or temple language for our body is common in the Bible. I want you to know that. Here's the last text. This is the maybe the clearest of them all, because... Hear me out on this. Three Greek root words that are used in 2 Corinthians 5, 1, three Greek words are used again in this verse, and they are making a similar point. Mark 14, 58, listen to this. These are the, the people accusing Jesus on the night of his death. 
We heard Jesus say, quote, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. And they don't realize they're talking about Jesus' body. I, so, I will destroy, same word from 2 Corinthians, when the earthly home is destroyed, I will destroy this temple, and in three days I will build another, God is going to give us a building from God, and it will be not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, you see, this is clearly referring to our physical tent that will one day die, and then one day at the resurrection we'll receive a permanent dwelling, a heavenly home, which is our physical, resurrected, glorified body, okay? I hope, that is, I hope that's clear. Now, I want to get into the I hope, I hope you'll find this helpful. I want to get into the intermediate state. So let's reread here a few verses. 2 Corinthians 5, I want to reread some verses so we get it clear in our mind. Verse 1, For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now, you you may hear there, remember Romans 8 uses that same word, groan? Listen to this. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly, as we eagerly wait for the adoption of sons, and then he defines it, the redemption of our bodies. Do you hear this? We groan inwardly as we wait for the redemption of our bodies. So in Romans 8, Paul takes the same word groan and he attaches it to our resurrection bodies explicitly. Everybody got that? That's Romans 8, 23. We groan for our resurrection body. So again, here I think the groaning is again for our resurrection body in this passage as well. Now, what does Paul mean by saying that he does not want to be found naked or unclothed? Now, there's debate about this, but I, I really do think it has a particular meaning here. If you'll, if you'll notice, I really only realize this, just when you reread the text, you start to see things, and verses 2 and 3 make the exact same point that verse 4 makes. Verses 2 and 3 say the same thing verse 4 says, just in different words which is highly helpful because you put them side by side and they illuminate each other because they're using different words to describe the same thing. Watch, I'm going to read it again. Verses 2 and 3. Look at the beginning of verse 2. For in this tent we groan. Look at verse 4. For while we are still in this tent we groan. Sound pretty similar. Go back to verse 2. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting on we may not be found naked. Look at the middle of verse 4. Being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, which is like being naked, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. You see how incredibly similar. Now, what is Paul describing here in this passage? I believe Paul is saying this. The New, Test- the New Testament doesn't give a lot of information, but it gives some on what is called the intermediate state of the believer after death. So follow this. We know that many believers have died before this moment, and if Jesus doesn't come back right now, other believers will pass away, and if, we live, uh, if Jesus delays to come back long enough, we will all experience the process of death and we will all die. Here's the question. What happens to a believer if they die right now before Jesus comes back? And you say, well, they go to heaven. Well, okay, that's true, but, but here's why it's not maybe as simple as it may seem at first glance. A lot of people grow up with this notion, it just sort of gets into our head through, I don't know what all it is. This notion is this, that 
We live on earth and the bodies and the physical world's kind of beneath us. It's not really spiritual. It's kind of like dirty. It's kind of like not, not great. And the really purely spiritual stuff is the soul, the immortal soul. That's the real thing. Sounds like Plato, right? So uh, the, the physical world's bad. The spiritual world, the non-physical world, that's the really good stuff. And I can't wait one day to shuffle off this mortal coil and one day go to heaven and just have my spirit floating around up there in heaven with Jesus for all of eternity because, man, that's what we're really made to do. In the biblical storyline, I, I can guarantee you that that is not how the Bible ends, okay? That's not the goal of, of human history. The goal of human history is embodied existence, enfleshed existence, physical existence. Now, here's why this is so amazing. Not only do we get this wrong sometimes today, in Paul's world, no one believed this who wasn't already Jewish at all. I mean, no one believed in bodily resurrection. I mean, you, you had beliefs in afterlifes, but the idea was you shuffle off this physical body, get rid of the dirty body, and go to your pure, your pure spiritual existence. And Paul says, no, that's not the ultimate goal. I don't want to ultimately spend eternity as a naked soul. I don't want to shuffle off this tent and just be a disembodied soul, naked without a body, floating around for all of eternity. My ultimate and final hope is an eternal dwelling from God, a resurrection body. And a new creation, a new heavens and new earth where God will dwell with us here in this world. And so, uh, that's how Paul speaks. Now, let, let me just say a number of things. I want to take extended time to talk about the intermediate state. Let me just say some things, okay? So, number one, we do not believe, we absolutely reject any notion of purgatory, uh, if you, from Catholic theology, let me quote the Catholic Catechism from a few decades ago. Here's what the Catholic Church says in their official teaching on the doctrine of purgatory. Quote, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation, but after death they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. The church gives the name purgatory to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from the punishment of the damned. That's the official teaching of the Catholic Church. The idea is you go to this place and you have your sins purged or burned out of you. You are purified, as in like a purifying fire sort of an idea, and you become absolutely perfectly holy, and then you are worthy to enter into God's presence. This is because the Catholic Church rejects the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Jesus that we are covered and credited with the perfect life of Christ, which we believe. So we are already as Christians, from the moment I first believe, I am absolutely acceptable in God's sight by God's grace because I'm clothed in Christ's righteousness. But because the Catholic Church does not believe in imputed righteousness, but imparted righteousness, which means it goes within me and I have to work it out, they believe this doctrine of purification after death. And that is a damaging and false doctrine. It is nowhere taught in the Bible. Greg mentioned a few weeks ago, I believe he did, that, that uh, we don't believe in annihilation. So we do not believe either unbelievers or believers when they die cease to exist or even eventually go out of existence. Uh, I, I know Christians who, who, uh, who would say that they believe that after a certain number of years uh, of punishment for sin, the unbeliever ceases to exist, that God ultimately is, quote, merciful to them and, and, and causes them to cease to exist. But biblically speaking, there are no good arguments to make for that position, and we do not believe in annihilationism, but that we will live forever, whether resurrected to life or resurrected to uh, destruction. Also, Greg mentioned soul sleep a few weeks ago. We do not believe in soul sleep. Let me just say one more word about that. Uh, Greg mentioned how with the Lazarus story, Jesus said, Lazarus is sleeping, and I go to awaken him. And he says, well, I'm speaking of his death. Sleep here is not referring to what happens to our soul when we die. 
It's referring to the way the body appears upon death. It appears as though the body is sleeping, and we are asleep in the Lord Jesus, and we await the resurrection of our body, but in the meantime, our soul is very much alive and well, uh, because Paul says to depart is not to go to sleep. To depart is to be with Christ, which is far better. Revelation 14, 13 describes this state with these words, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is, is gain. So, uh, may, let me make very clear, when the believer dies, they go from a good thing, which is life in this world, mixed with all of its sin, it's still a good thing, God works it for our good. When we die, we go to something far better. We go, our soul goes into the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus. We go into fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We go into the closest fellowship with Jesus we could have ever imagined the moment upon death. We are, we are in the Lord's presence and we are absolutely, listen, without sin. There is no sin. There is no sinful thought, no sinful desire, no sinful motive, no sinful action. We see the Lord. We are overwhelmed by the beauty of the Lord Jesus, and we are in communion with the Lord. As Jesus said, we are with Christ. To the thief on the cross, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Even in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Paul says, yes, we are of good courage. We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. It is better for the believer personally upon death to be home with the Lord than to continue on here in this body. And in this may sound like a major misunderstanding, which it is, but I read about a church member who asked their pastor, in all seriousness, should believers take their own lives because it's better to be with Christ? And the pastor said, no, listen, we've got to trust that God, if He has us here, He has us here for a reason. And even though it might be selfishly or better, you know, for me personally to be there, but no, the Lord has a, has a calling on our life until we are called to go home by His sovereignty and His plan. And while we are here, no, we endeavor to serve others. As Paul himself said in Philippians 1, he says, uh, I'm, I'm torn between the two, but he said, I'm going to continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So we are here as long as God has us here to serve others. But when the Lord's timing comes, He will call us home. But let me, let me be clear. This is the strange part of this teaching of the intermediate state. It is not yet the fullness of what we will have in the resurrection. This, this is the part that's maybe hard for us to even understand. You're in heaven in the immediate presence of Jesus, but yet you don't yet have all the fullness that will come in the resurrection. Let me quote MacArthur again. MacArthur says, to be naked then is to be only a soul without a resurrection body. Paul reminded the Corinthians that when his earthly tent was dismantled by death, he would not exist forever as a naked disembodied spirit. He was not looking for the release from his body, but for the perfection of his resurrected body. Tom Schreiner says the same thing. Nakedness here refers to the awkwardness of living apart from one's resurrection body. For human beings were meant to live in bodies that were eternal from the outset. But, think about this. Turn, turn with me to the last book of the Bible. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 6. I think there, uh, there's a fascinating text here about the intermediate state. The more you read this passage, the more you see insight into the intermediate state. This is referring for sure to believers who are in the intermediate state 
They have been martyred for their faith, but the resurrection has not yet happened. The, the return of Christ has not yet happened in this text. So we get an insight into the state of believers in heaven now. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. And there's more here than maybe even is, you might see when you first read it. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. I'm borrowing some of this from another pastor, some of it I thought of on my own, but putting these together, here are the insights we gain about the intermediate state. And some of these are so simple, but I don't think we think about this enough. Number one, they are aware of life on earth. That's what they're talking to God about in the text. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood and judge those on the earth who murdered us? So they are aware of life on earth. We don't know to what degree precisely, but there is an awareness of life on earth. Number two, they remember their previous life on earth. You, you hear it, right? How long until you avenge those who killed us? They remember that they were martyred. They remember their previous life on earth. They remember what happened to them, and they're actually talking to God about it in heaven. They even remember how they died. Number three, they even remember sinful things that happened to them because they remember that they were murdered. <laughs> they remember they were murdered. They remember exactly what the, un, the injustice that occurred in their death. They remember it, and they're actually talking to God about it. Number four, this, this is shockingly obvious, but I just didn't see it. They don't know everything. They're not omniscient upon death. You know how I know that? They're asking God a question and waiting for an answer, which means you're not omniscient. And, and I think we know that, but listen, I want this to be clear. We will never be omniscient. The Bible never teaches that we as Christians will one day have God's knowledge of everything, everywhere, all the time. We will always, this is, I think this is more exciting in a sense as being creatures, we will ever be expanding our knowledge of God in heaven and in resurrection. We will never become omniscient, but we will always have the thrill of knowing that tomorrow I'll know God even better than I know him today. And there will never come a day where we'll say tomorrow, I'll just be all the stuff I already know. No, God will be unveiling and revealing his glory to us in ways we cannot comprehend every day in heaven. And there will never come an end, which means we'll have ever increasing knowledge and ever increasing joy in what we know about God for all of eternity. That is astonishing to think about. Number five, they are joy-filled and at rest with the Lord, as is talked about here, and yet they still have unsatisfied desire in a sense because justice has not yet been done. They're saying, Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? In other words, they are totally happy in the Lord's presence, but they still have an unfulfilled longing. Lord, how long until you bring justice to this world? How long until you set all wrongs right? How long until your glory is seen by all and all? That is implied there. So they are totally satisfied, but yet there's unfulfilled desire. Lord, come and do what you promise you will do. Do that, please. That's seen also in their loud cries, the emotion that they speak in. Number six, they appear to experience time that corresponds with time on earth. I mean, this gets, sometimes people get really strange on this stuff. Like, you know, you, you just... You die the moment you, you go to the other side, you're resurrected and Jesus has already come back and we just time warp to, no, 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 get, get this. Their, their experience of time, whatever that looks like, corresponds to time on earth. How do I know that? Because the answer to their prayer is, look at, uh, look at the middle of verse 11, well, let's just start at verse 11, 
They ask how long, which is a time question. How long before you judge? That's a time question. Verse 11, uh, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had. You see, they are waiting in heaven for a time to be fulfilled on earth, which is the last martyr to die, which means their time corresponds with earthly time and they are told to wait a little longer, which is a time word. You can't wait if there's no time. So in heaven, there is time. In chapter 8, it says there was silence in heaven for half an hour. That's called 30 minutes, that's time. So, so there, there's, a, there's a, we don't, I, I sometimes think that we, we talk about heaven in a way that is so unrelatable that we don't even get excited about it like we should. I mean, we, 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 we're going to be in the immediate presence of Jesus. We're going to be, if we die now, we're going to be longing still for his justice and glory to be fully revealed. We're going to be waiting for the last of the martyrs to die and for the return of Christ to come where we will be resurrected and we will return with Christ. And, and get this, we're told they're, they're called souls here, but yet they still seem to have some kind of bodily existence because they have robes that they put on. Later, they're waving palm branches in chapter 7. They have some kind of physical, some kind of bodily existence. This always confused me. I don't have the final answer to this question. Like, what exactly is the intermediate existence? I don't exactly know, but here's one pastor gave me a help on this. Angels don't have physical bodies. They're just spirits. Hebrews 1. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels? So there's their spirits. But yet they can take on bodily form, can't they? The angels covered in eyes in heaven. You've got the angel Gabriel who appears to Mary in bodily form. They can take on some kind of bodily form, but it is not the same as a resurrection body. And perhaps, I'm not sure, perhaps something along those lines is in our intermediate existence. But Paul says there's something still to have beyond that, which is resurrection life. So, so listen here. Behold, I tell you a mystery, 1 Corinthians 15. We shall not all sleep, not all believers will die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. So the resurrection waits till that moment. The return of Christ when the trumpet sounds is when resurrection happens. Listen to this verse, 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, same trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, still alive when Christ returns, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Or Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. So let me, let me make some closing comments here about death from the perspective of a Christian here and now. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is an often overlooked but wonderful verse, passage, end of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So how are Christians supposed to think about death here and now? Well, number one, this may sound strange, but death is ours. You say, that's an odd way to put it. Look how Paul says this. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 verse 21. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. In other words, all things are for your benefit is what that means. All things are yours. They're for your benefit. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. God is going to use life for your good. He's going to use death for your good. He's going to use the world for your good. All things work for your good. Death is ours in Christ. Number two, death will not separate us from God's love in Christ. I am sure that neither death nor life nor the present nor the future nor angels nor powers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death cannot separate the Christian from God's love. Right before that, though, it says, can famine or nakedness or sword separate us? He says, well, we are being killed all day long. We're like sheep before the, before the slaughter. And he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Number three, death may be the last enemy, but it is not the ultimate enemy. Death is the last enemy to be destroyed, but it is not the ultimate enemy. Uh, first, if you're in 1 Corinthians, flip to chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, look down toward the end of the chapter, verses 55 to 57. Fifteen, verse fifty-five. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death. Here's the ultimate enemy: is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our ultimate enemy has been defeated, which is sin itself. And finally, in the same passage, death will be swallowed up by life. Look back just to verse fifty-three. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death will be overwhelmed, swallowed up in victory. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just a few pages to your left as we come to the Lord's table. 1 On the night when Jesus was betrayed, He took a cup. Look with me at verse 23, and this is what he said. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It is because of Christmas and because of His death on Good Friday and His resurrection on Easter that we have hope to stand right before God. And the elements before us today are representative of that reality, Christ's body given for us and His blood shed for us. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you are not walking in unrepentant sin, we would invite you to come forward and partake of these elements and return uh, to your seat. 
this is a time of repentance. It's a time of mourning over our sin, but it is also a time of rejoicing in the finished work of Jesus Christ. At the same time, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus, we would ask in all seriousness that you refrain from partaking of these elements. Scripture gives strong warning about those who take these elements without a right relationship with the Lord Jesus. We would ask instead that you would even right now, if you're not a believer, that you would speak with the Lord and plead with Him to rescue you from your own sin as He's rescued, uh, as he's rescued us from our sin, and that you would ask Him for forgiveness and a new life that is available in Christ. Please bow your head with me. I'm going to read from Revelation chapter 7. <clears throat> After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. He said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Lord, we are thrilled at all that is before us as believers. Lord, if we are to die before the return of Christ, we know that we will go into this incredible state of blessedness in your presence. Even if we do not yet have our resurrection body, we know that it will be far better in the life that is here, because we will depart and be with Christ, which is far better. To live here in this world is Christ, and to die is more of Christ, and therefore it is gain. And God, we are thrilled at that prospect, and if we are to live until Christ returns, which is certainly possible, if we live until the return of Christ and we receive our resurrection body at the very return so that we never even experience death Lord, what, what an incredible reality that will be, but we know that you will not forget those who have fallen asleep in the Lord, because the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are still alive and are left will not precede those who have fallen asleep, but we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Lord, we thank you that you will reign in a new earth, a new creation, the home of righteousness. Yes, this world will be purged with a fire, but in the end it will be restored. The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And Lord, we, we, we long, we groan with Paul for that day when we are as we were meant to be, soul and body united, no sin in the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the lamp and the very light of the new creation. And Lord, we long for that day. Help us to hope in it and to live in accordance with its truth. I pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.